Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Molly Taylor-Pileski, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Karima Moyer-Noki about her new book, The Eternal Table. Karima Moyer is a food historian and food scholar in Umbria, Italy. She is also a professor at the University of Siena. Her first book is entitled Chewing the Fat, an Oral History of Italian Food from Fascism to Dolce Vita. Karima, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Um, well, if I can talk a bit about, I'd probably go back quite a bit. Um, people often ask in interviews how I got interested in food. And when I've sort of sat with that question on my own time, it really goes back as far as my earliest memories. For myself, I'd have to say that um, I have a, an innate affinity with food. And it manifests in many ways with many people. And that is sort of a a nature nurture question. I feel that it's at the base. I mean, it's part of who I am, like writing as part of people like part of myself as well. Um, With the nurture aspect, though, I would say that my father, who is a professor of sociology, and he and I had this way of relating to each other, which he would lecture me in, in sociology. So I kind of grew up that way, very interested in sociology, but also in history. So particularly in social history, bringing those things two things together. Then all of my food writing is about the social history of food. Um, in the two books that I've written, I use food as a portal to reconstruct uh, the history of a time period, to point out, um, or in the, the case of my first book, to, to point out um, the issues of a particular time. So Chewing the Fat was based on oral histories of women in their 90s. It was about um, food during the fascist era. And I, I go through that angle, um, looking at food to, to talk about 
um, history and, and reconstructed, actually. Whereas um, the Eternal Table, a, the Eternal Table cultural history of food in Rome, is looking at the long durée. Um, so in this case, I'm looking at an isolated geographic area area um, from its inception to the present day. Now, how I came to the book, I hadn't actually planned on writing this book like I had I had stewed over chewing the fat for quite a while. Um, a, the opportunity was given to me. I was really excited about it. Uh, as I say in my introduction, it's it's absolutely a, a privilege to be able to write about Rome, contribute to the academy, um, writing about about this this city, which I think is one of the the most fascinating for me, one of the most fascinating cities um, ever. Um, so, and then when I came down to actually. I was approached, but then I needed to write the proposal myself. Writing up the proposal, um, I became very daunted and realized that I was needing, going to need to put 2,500 years of history into 250 pages. So I tried at that point, I, I sincerely got scared and tried at that point to back out and made a counter proposal of, of Florence and Bologna, Bologna, which has an extensive food history. But uh, uh, Rome really frightened me. But they wanted um, they wanted Rome, and so it was sort of Rome or nothing. And and so I um, I forged on. So that's how I came to to writing this book. Well, thank you, Karima. I hope we do get the chance to hear uh, from you again with other books, follow-up books about the history of Bolognese food and about the history of Florentine food. Uh, but for now, let's continue talking about the Eternal Table, the Eternal City, and uh, this contribution you have to this wonderful series of food history books called Big City Food Biographies, um, edited by Ken Albala. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk about what it means to write a biography through food. What is a biography of a city? I think one of the problems of writing food history is that one gets caught up um, and perhaps I should get a little bit more caught up in in listing the foods um, so that they often become a history of the food become these elaborate historical grocery lists that overlook the social contours um, of the existence of a city and and how organic it is and systemic it is. Um, so food history is not a list of plants, animals, and dishes, but uh, a narrative. It's the story, the life of the production distribution, the accessibility, demand, and control over food. Uh, it's about the, the human partnership of what is raised, picked, fished, caught, slaughtered, and cooked. It's about the, the meaning and expression and manifestation of eating um, and feeding as it's experienced along, along this continuum of excess and dearth. So it's, very, it's much more than what did people eat? I think you did a 
a wonderful job of explaining this in the introduction to the book in the first chapter, especially where you do start with um, a description of the topography and the ecology that's native to um, the area around Rome. But it's not environmental determinism. And you do a very nice job of doing exactly what you just described in writing the uh, biography of the city, that it isn't just um, humans who uh, cause the food to be what it is. It's not just the environment. It's a a partnership. It's a relationship between many different factors. Um, And I also agree with you that food history is so much more than lists of ingredients and lists of recipes. Um, So I was wondering if you could draw out a little bit, what is Roman cuisine? What are its characteristics? What makes it the way it is? What I want to emphasize in my rendering of the history of Rome is how embedded food is in history. And that's generally speaking. food which hitherto has been written as if no one ever ate. So part of doing the research, uh, as you know, um, part of doing research about food food history is that if you're looking at historical sources, you, you can eke out and pick out a few sentences that maybe are referring to something about food. And it takes, there's so much sifting that, go, that goes on into actually um, finding something that is historical. So, um, so about Rome, even though historians have seemingly fine-tooth combed every micro hair of Roman history, and and so much has been written on the minutia of various isolated details about food in Rome, there is not in English or in Italian, until my book, um, a concise history of their food. I would like to make an exception with um, the the book by a, a um, Zanini, uh, shepherds, popes, peasants, etc., because she does. Uh, but it's mostly a recipe-based book. So there are a lot of recipe-based books, a lot of um, scholars who are picking out little areas of uh, of food history, or even one food, and looking at that in detail. But this has been left to, um, fortunately, to me. Um, so, but more specifically about Rome, there are a few cities, really, if any, whose whose history, including the material culture of food, is so markedly influenced by mobility. That is the influx and outgo, passing through, immigration, and the transfer of people and their baggage, their baggage being whatever it is, the religion, the politics, their beliefs, um, people from all walks of life, uh, starting with the arrival of the Latins who descended down from the Caucasia area uh, of Europe through the Po Valley. Um, and so, so there wasn't this sort of organic people, but a peopling of people coming in from outside that created that area. And then if you want to look mythologically, which you can't avoid doing with Rome, um, you can start with the arrival of Aeneas on the on the shore of Latium with his merry band and the whole story of, of, of pizza or them eating their trenchers, eating their plates. And so if you know the poem by Virgil, um, 
And his descendants would then end up being Romulus and Remus. So it's all about people coming in. And I think that's so very important to our times and talking about immigration. Um, one of the issues that I want to, another issue that I want to bring to light about Roman food. And so these are, these are the characteristics of Roman food for me, rather than doing the grocery list is that Despite how much we love the idea of timelessness, um, particularly as it relates to Italian food, and there is there is a lot of comfort in continuity, in the idea of traditions and authenticity, um, and and knowing that there is continuity gives us a sense of comfort. But one of the defining characteristics of Rome and Roman food is how it has changed over time how much it has changed over the centuries. So you put that together, again, with, with the people and their beliefs, and the combination of that with the autochthonous flora and fauna, which is specific to Rome, um, and the way that that flora and fauna are expressed culinarily over the ages. Um, that is what the expression of Roman food is. And there is a, like a language, there's a grammar of food that, that changes over time, um, always retaining something that is reminiscent of the past, but it moves on like a language, the culinary language does as well, but it needs to be recognizably then Roman. Um, and what that is, what is recognizably Roman as well, changes over time. Um, I, I dedicate an entire chapter because this is so important, uh, to Rome, to, uh, to mobility and its effects on Romanary culinary culture, uh, Roman culinary culture. But it, it's something that resonates in the entire book. And as I said, it's a particularly important issue in the times that we're living in now, the appreciation of how things did get to be, um, what they, what they are then. I love the way that you talk about that metaphor of the grammar of food and the language of food, that the Roman cuisine is always shifting. And this idea of the eternal city, the eternal table, that it's something static, um, has been really the ideal in many points of Western history, from the Renaissance even to the New Republic in America, that there's an idea of Rome that's frozen in time that probably doesn't match up very well to everyday lived reality through, for any part of Roman history. I was wondering if you could walk us through some of the milestones of Roman food history as you see them. What are kind of the, the, the points of change or um, the points that really uh, stick out to create what we think of as Roman food? I don't want to dwell too much on antiquity, but um, some of the it's it's still very important to understand the basic foundations that would carry through in time. Um, again, we're, so it, we're talking about this combination of so much change and then things that were established in antiquity that um, move through time and adapt. To the different situations. So let me give some examples. Um, a, for example, the the patron client relationship 
um, which is about which developed and went and would would also manifest in other sorts of ways. It's actually very much what the what the Italian culture is about today, about doing favors and who you need to um, to to butter up or bow to or um, or who you who's I'm trying thinking in Italian right now. Sorry. Um, Porta Borsa, whose bag you're carrying, it would be. So, um, so the that patron-client relationship that developed so early, as a way of of stratifying um, the the way of understanding social relationships, the distribution of land, which became so unequal and ended up being the these latifondi which are huge, uh, un, unused amounts of land in the hands of very few people. That also began in Rome. Ideas about, from this then, ideas about which foods were appropriate for different rungs of society. Um, what I call the, then the, the, the tolling classes and the eating classes, the, um, the parasites and, and, uh, the wannabes and Klingons as, as, as well. They all had food that they were supposed to be, that was appropriate for them, um, as well as the structuring of etiquette codes, which you cannot separate from the food itself, really. So, so much of that carries through even today. One of the uh, most important aspects of this, moving through time from Roman sacrifice and the way that one is com communing with the gods, which was centered on um, animal sacrifice. And that's how you, you a, ingested or sat at the table with, with the gods. And how with the fall of Rome, this was replaced with the flesh of Christ embodied in bread. And there's a little bit of a bridge that goes through with the the anona, which is the, the wheat dole, which became the bread dole, which was also deified. So, um, um, and moving that into to the embodiment of, of Christ in bread, the demonization of meat, wherein one third of the calendar was then delineated into fasting and lean days, fasting a little bit more severe than, um, than the lean days. But this is also going to see, you're going to see this in cookbooks up to the, um, all the way through the 19th century and the, be, the beginning of the, the beginning of the 20th even, where cookbooks just, it would advise you about, um, uh, which, which foods you could eat when. And here's a recipe. However, if it's a lean day or a fast day, this is the way you need to make it. So these these kinds of things are being established um, very early on. So the reconceptualization of that is going to have lasting effects in the way that we perceive food in the West. Um, Roman antiquity, then also some of these milestones, the, the huge one in Roman antiquity, and then I can move on from there, was the um, recipe book by by the attributed author Apicius, which gives us a wealth of information 
about the combinations of food. So we can know maybe what was grown and through the great agriculturalists, um, which, which the gentleman's farm or what they were growing and et cetera. But through Opicius, we get a lot of information about taste then what, what would have been, um, what would have been perceived as, as being good to them, the kinds of combinations. So then after that, there's this really awful gap, what they call the dark ages, of course, of a thousand years when there isn't a recipe book coming out of Rome. There's one a little bit earlier, um, out of, out of Naples, but I mean, just the thought of that so disconcerting as a food historian of linking Apicius then to the next recipe book, which isn't going to come until 1465 with Maestro Martino. And that's really late into the Middle Ages. Some people would even say that it's in, in Italy in particular, it was um, the beginning of the Renaissance, but still you're talking about early modern age and a huge gap in how do we make those connections. Um, and this is where we get uh, talking about um, a little bit more about a, a movement and mobility. Uh, this is where we get into the influence of the papal seat and having the papal seat, which, which had only uh, come back to from, from Avignon very recently at that point, uh, been restored to Rome. So on food of the aristocracy and uh, the, the, the recipes. So despite our modern preoccupation with what's called the cucina povera, the Aristotic table. So, okay, let me, let me, our modern preoccupation with the cucina povera um, and the aristocratic table. My point is that while we are putting a lot of value on the cucina povera, and I, I do, I say my bit in the book about that. Um, no one aspires to for subsistence living. It was not a kind of rural life that people were enjoying, unless you were part of the senatorial aristocracy and a gentleman farmer. Um, so everyone, even everyone, is looking up to what their so-called betters were eating and wanting to imitate that and, and um, emulate that. So a, while what we know comes from cookbooks, which is what people aspired to eat and were not necessarily eating, that is what um, the, the aspiration of that is what's going to, to then determine how the culinary history moves on then because the people of the lower class is going to be wanting to um, participate in that. Um, the papal seat also meant invention, entertainment, a mix of, of cosmopolitan people seeking to impress each other through the prowess of their kitchen staff. And so there was a lot, again, a lot of exchange um, amongst and, and, and various cooks at this point Exchanging ideas, exchanging um, ingredients and what to do with ingredients, how that was going to be expressed and who had the most impressive um, uh, kitchen staff. I'm including the chefs 
and the the trinchante and the who are the people who are are carving and serving bottiglieri, the people who are the, with the with um, uh, the, the the wine and 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 all of that really coming out through the the fact that the Santa Sede, the Holy See, was uh, was then in Rome. Again, there's this expression in Italian called uh, it goes. Il bello e il buono garba tutti, which essentially means everyone likes nice things. So there was this cultural trickle down, uh, as well as an appreciation for the simplicity, which was advocated by many of the more pious, pious popes. They were looking at a more simple life, some of them who, who ate one meal a day or something like that. Um, so the papal seat then also meant the influx of pilgrims from from all over, meaning that Rome was going to have to come up with a hospitality scheme. Um, and then milestones. If I can go on, I've gone I've gone on a long time with this, but um, terribly important Bartolomeo Scappi. Um, the great Renaissance chef, again, chef, the, he's called the, the, the Coca Segreto, uh, which just means the, like the word Segreto, secretary. So he's the private chef to um, Pius, um, Pope Pius the fourth and fifth. Um, again, um, that's a huge tome an enormous wealth of information that we've, he's left us. His his cookbook, by the way, is uh, 1570. So, um, and then so uh, moving on from there, with with other books, then you have the French hegemony that's coming in, um, and we need to move into then uh, the. Getting into the 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 nineteenth century, the seventeenth century, nineteenth century, when we move into Romanesco, before Rome starts establishing a, a semblance of something that is is their own again, because of this this other influence. I see. I I uh, tripped over that. Um word Romanesco, thinking about what is that in comparison to Roman cuisine in general. So could you explain what the difference is between those two terms, Roman and Romanesco, particularly when it comes to food? Yeah, this is um, a sort of an artificial terminology that I leaned on. I, I certainly didn't create it, but I, I leaned on the availability of uh, um La Cucina Romanesca, which it was also called at that time. But, I mean, if you look at, at, at the first um, the first regional cookbook, 1929, Adaboni, she's calling her book La Cucina Romana. The problem with, um, with talking about Roman food and Romanesco is, is that there is this enormous, enormous body of scholarship and writing around Roman antiquity. Um, and that is what people then think of as um, Roman. When I was talking about writing this book 
initially, everyone assumed that I was talking about antiquity when I said Roman food. Um, and, and so I felt it was necessary to, to make this distinction of what comes out, what begins to build politically and socially in the, um, in the 18th and 19th century that would then be called Romanesco that has its manifestations now in what you, um, find in restaurants. The, um, the Romanesco is a, um, if I can really, really simplify it, a triple matrix of what is um, La Cucina Ebraica, Roman Jewish cuisine. Um, the, a, so let me say a little bit about that before I go into the, the other two um, aspects of this triple matrix. Um, I, I don't include... Jewish cuisine in the chapter on mobility because the Jewish community dates dates back so far that it's considered a, an integral part of um, of Roman culture of um, of antiquity and there is what's called the the bene Romi, which is it is a a specifically it's a specific kind like the um, the Sephardim, uh, a, a, for example, the, the Sephardic, Sephardic, yeah, Sephardic food. So the, the, uh, the Beni Romi is also part of that where they have their own traditions. In fact, they clash sometimes now the recent thing about artichokes and that artichokes are not, are not kosher. Which, um, which, which was completely ignored, but other aspects of the Kesher dietary laws, which were sidestepped or reinterpreted by, by Roman Jews in accordance with, with some of their, um, Uzanse, sorry, their, their, their customs. So they have a very long history. Um, which then changes with the uh, the Iberian expulsion. That's so interesting about the Bene Romi. That's the particular type of Jewish community in Rome. Is that what you're saying? Um, okay. Um, if I can be, be a bit more specific about this. Please, so, yeah. Yeah. So the Jewish presence in Rome can be traced back to the Republican age. That so we can speak of indigenous Italian Jews or an Italkim who um, practice what's called minhag beni romi, um, which are the traditions and customs that are specific to Roman Jewry that were followed by the um, also followed by the groups that would later come out as a result of persecution, notably from the Iberian expulsion in 1492. Um, then another important point, and this gets, gets pulled through and modified also, I want to say importantly with what happened in, um, in Libya and the large community of Libyan Jews who came in and brought their cuisine as well. So the basic um, 
indigenous Roman Jew population, the um, the Spanish community then coming down, which was greatly influenced by Catalan cuisine, um, bringing that down into Rome, and then up from Libya. Uh, this was this was much later. Um, the the expulsion of the of the Jews that they needed to be lifted out and um, and they a lot of them went to Rome so bringing that kind of culture with them the food and the spices uh, and mixing all of that together so that's part of all part of what is Jewish cuisine and there are some people who who say and feel that Jewish cuisine, Roman cuisine is Jewish cuisine, that it is one and the same sort of thing. Um, but then you have, need to take into consideration so many things like the, the mixing of, of food, of, of dairy and meat, um, and the high, very high consumption of pork. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. That's so interesting what you're saying about the Roman community, uh, the Jewish Roman community being almost a microcosm of Roman food altogether. And I wonder, are there particular dishes from either those indigenous um, Roman Jews, as, as you term them, or from the other immigration periods to um, what I think is the still the Jewish quarter in Rome, or at times the Jewish ghetto, um, even dishes that or particular foods that we might find in Rome today. Yes, in particular is the Carciofa da Judea, um, which is a, a an opened up artichoke that is uh is deep fried in in oil that sounds wonderful so so, um other people have wanted to say that you know whatever the carbonara and the payata the payata is lamb intestines or veal intestines that still have the mother's milk in them um however you're getting into a little bit of difficult territory mixing in what I was going to say also about the Quinto Quarto, but but let me just give you an example of um, of for example a, a Libyan influence of uh, hirami is a is a fish dish that is a spicy dish um, and it's part of the cucina tripolitana from from Tripoli. 
So in this dish, you have a lot of a lot of spices and dried fruit, um, and red pepper flakes, caraway, cumin. And and lemon. And so when you think about this dish, you don't necessarily think about Roman cuisine, but this is an important dish in Rome that was brought in through through uh, the Libyan Jewish community then. Um, So but another part is also the the quinto quarto, the, the second part of the matrix. So the quinto quarto is um, derived from a series of of political events, particularly the Testaccio slaughterhouse, the building of the Testaccio slaughterhouse, and the availability of um, the of awful, which is the quinto quarto, means the fifth quarter, which would be the internal organs of um, bovine, so of cows. And that became a a very important part of the culinary grammar of Rome in which you have all of those parts, but then the parts of the aristocracy or the wealthier people at this point were eating the brains and the tongue. They don't really result as part of that. So what you have is um, the is tripe, Roman tripe, which is with um, uh, mint and then pecorino romano, uh, the coda alla vaccinara, a, a very, very long stewed uh, oxtail with, uh, with dried fruit and wine, also the addition of chocolate, very important uh, aspect of that is, is celery. Um, and, and animedle, which are, uh, which is the thymus gland. Um, so all of this, uh, the, the quinto quarto, which was part of the workers' compensation or part of their uh, payment in kind, um, and which then became an important institution of representing the um, the Roman cuisine. The third part of the matrix then is the countryside and the outskirts, which is where we get the battery of then uh, the the pasta dishes. So uh, the pasta dishes that everyone knows, uh, perhaps, um, I don't want to take this for granted, spaghetti alla grisha. And this is one of the keystones because it's related to than to the the other dishes, um, the spaghetti uh, alla grisha, which is with pasta and um, I'm pointing to my cheek, uh, a cured pork gel, la guanciale. Sorry, the guanciale. I'm, I'm having a, I'm having a little a little language uh, transfer problem here. So um, so we have a, a grisha. The matriciana, matriciana is basically the same dish with the with the addition of, or a very similar dish, with the addition of tomato, and then the very famous carbonara, also cacio pepe, cheese with pasta, 
Um, but I, and I don't think I need to, to define the carbonara as it's an international dish at this point. Absolutely. So we just made it last week in my house and we did indeed make a vegan carbonara. And then I read your passage about there is nothing, <laughs> you know, in the Roman dialect, these 10 commandments about the carbonara dish, and there's no such thing as a vegan carbonara. So we have to read Right, right, right. Don't say, don't, it's the, the commandment is don't use the word carbonara and vegan in the same sentence. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so now that we have the distinction between la cucina romana and la cucina romanesca, that the cucina romanesca is more the living version of Roman food. It, it, am I understanding that correctly? That it's um, not ancient Roman food, you know, what we think of when we think of oh, Rome and Roman food. No, we're leaving the, the ancients and we're talking about all of these many different layers of um people moving through um, Rome and through its countryside uh, to create a more varied cuisine um, than one might imagine initially. So since we're on that topic of particular dishes and, you know, my time, we're getting close to lunchtime. I know your time, we're getting close to dinner time. And yes, this is a a hazard, a professional hazard of food historians that you do get hungry a lot while you're doing your work. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, present day Roman food and say, if one were to visit Rome, where can visitors to Rome best appreciate that cucina romanesca? And um, where might one find anything close to an authentic Roman cuisine? Or is that even possible? Okay, so something happened historically. Um, we've gone through all of this history, and that's part of um, what I wanted to establish in the book. That is, it's a very long history with a lot of different um, influences and foods and and manifestations that come and go and change, um, mutate, and and then you get up. To then the, the the 19th century, with really the consolidation of what Jewish cuisine is, the quinto quarto, the um, the pasta dishes from the the outskirts that are taken then into um, move on into the 20th century. Now, by the time you get there, there is a phenomenon that happens with with tourism. Well, uh, uh, yes, I don't want to, I, I'll, I'll avoid, I was going to talk about the, there was a nationalist movement with um, fascism where Italian food was then recognized or there was this insular, insular movement to valorize Italian food, whereas the valued food up to that point was French. Um, valuing what was at home. So, and uh, this wasn't so much on a regional on a regional thing. But what happens then when tourism begins and you move through fascism, fascism, um, and you get to what's called the economic miracle period of time. And tourists are coming in. Now, Rome, of course, has always had tourists because, you know, starting with the Grand Tour in 1660 um, and tourism that that developed. 
principally to go and see the ruins, though. They there there wasn't a great hospitality thing. The uh, cuisine was not a reason to go to Rome. Um, it, it becomes that then when so many tourists are coming in in the post World War II era, um, particularly moving to the 70s, and then you get what I call the template menu. Template menu is. Um, a very limited series of dishes that are sold as historical Roman food. Um, historical Roman food, which doesn't take into consideration the entire 2000 and, and let's see, 2400 years previous, except for, you know, you do have your Florida chicory and things like that. Um, so every menu to be safe and to sell food to tourists has a very basic template, which is la grisha, la matriciana, cacio pepe, um, the carbonara, and then you move into your, your side dishes, which is puntarelle, carciofi allergia. Uh, puntarelle are Sorry, yes, puntarelle is a kind of chicory that grows in a um, in a bulb. It's a it's a varietal um, that has this center bulb that looks like a cluster of um, of asparagus spears. Okay. You those, so you pull those These off. Are like alien broccoli, right? This is. <laughs> Well, no, it's not the alien broccoli. The alien oh, broccoli okay. is is the cabofiori romanesco, right? Right. So, so you have the alien broccoli, which is an absolute beautiful, beautiful looking thing. Um, but the puntarelle really is probably it has a limited season, so you need to go there kind of in the winter. Um, it dies out in 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 springtime, but it, it is one of the, the the key dishes. They can't have it all year. Carciofi managed to go on pretty much all, even though there is a major point in time um, in, in over the winter into spring when carciofi are having their heyday. So um, the puntarelli then are pushed through a kind of a grid and at which point they're put into water. And then I do a, a thing on this of, of my, on my, um, on my website about how, how puntarelli are made. So they're pushed and then they get, they curl up when they curl up, then they're taken out and they're made into this, this raw salad, which has a base of vinegar, anchovies and garlic. And even though it's so simple, it, it's, it's absolutely stunningly delicious. Well, salad. I did just Google it while you were describing it and I have never <laughs> seen that before. And I realized I've missed out a lot on Roman cuisine uh, that oh, I have yeah, that's to look forward thing. to reading this book. Right. Right. So, so even though this is a template, this, this, these are the things that people seek out when they go to Rome, but that forces Roman restaurateurs into um, everyone producing the same menu and selling those, that, that list of greatest hits. Um, and I recently did a series of interviews for a paper that I'm, that I'm writing on well, what does a chef do? A, a chef who's ambitious, who 
wants to create something as well that's a signature of their contribution to Roman culinary evolution, um, what they can do to personalize some of that. And, um, and it's really rather fraught because you need to establish your name. You need to establish yourself in as, as some sort of authority in some kind of way in order to modify those tried and true dishes. Um, because people going, the, a large, large percentage of the people going to Roman restaurants, um, are looking for that greatest hit. And, and so you've got to make them in a way that tourists are going to expect that food. So there's this historical construct that you find on, um, on a menu that doesn't reflect the very long history of um, of food in Rome, only a very small part of it. So let's just, if we can just take carbonara as an example. The first time that carbonara was written is in, which is is in 1950. The first recipe comes out in 1954, and the ingredients that that um, the um, the um, the Decalogue, the, the, the Ten Commandments of that have, were, we came out relatively recently. The Ten Commandments of Carbonara is a very a sociologically extremely interesting that you need to have a Ten Commandments for a recipe and that that particular food is treated as if it had always existed, but it's, it's a very recent thing. Um, probably the most recent, even more recent than, than Supli. Which, um, which, uh, but to stick with the with the with the topic of of carbonara, um, that needs to be on every single menu in Rome as one of as part of this historical construct. See what I'm saying? I do, I do, and I think it's uh, beholden to tourists to get out and and not to only hit the top 10 list of what you're supposed to eat in Rome, but to allow chefs to experiment a little more and that will benefit everyone. Right. And so, um, so in, in talking to these chefs about how, how they move out of that, one of the, there is a restaurant called eggs, for example, that has a whole list of a variety of, of carbonara of different kinds of carbonara, but you're not necessarily, and you're going to, then a, you have Heinz Beck then who makes a ravioli that is a carbonara with a, with the, with the raw egg inside. Um, so when you've got a certain amount of authority, you can vary from that, or if you blatantly say, I'm going out of that scheme, but then everyone else needs to reproduce something that, that tourists are going to want to eat. So that they can say, "Oh yes, I had the real deal." Um, interestingly enough, in 2008, they did a. There was a national, the first national, or actually, well, no, it was national, first national competition for carbonara to firmly establish what good carbonara was, and and to come up with with 
a definitive recipe of what it was. And the man who won it was Nabil Hassan, who is, um, I don't, I didn't write this in the book because um, that's a future plan. Um, a 2008, Nabil Hassan, who is Tunisian, won the best, the best Carbonara a, uh, award. He had, yes, he had, now he had been in Rome for a while working in a Sicilian restaurant, which had, um, which had a French orientation. I'm not quite sure how that worked, uh, but that was his first, his first position as chef in Rome. When he won that um, national recognition, he had been working as a chef for a, a Roman chef in, in, in uh, Salumeria Roscioli, where he makes an excellent carbonara, um, Salumeria Roscioli. Uh, he had been working there for two years. So, right. And so um, that, again, speaks to immigration, the... Um, the the mixing of peoples when i when i interviewed nabil and he also he invited me to come into his kitchen and i filmed him making uh carbonara so i know all the secrets now but um when i interviewed him and we talked about carbonara he himself because of this idea of timelessness and no one really let him in on on the gag um he actually thought that this dish was something that dated back to the Renaissance. Aha. Okay. So there's a mythology that doesn't line up with actual history. Right. We so willfully want that to be true. Absolutely. Uh, Well, Karima, we've taken up a a lot of your time today and um, you mentioned your website and I do just want to point our listeners to it. The full website is theeternaltable.com. All one word, the eternal table. And it's a wonderful forum where you share your love of cooking and food history, and you have lots of beautiful photographs. And um, for anyone who's interested to delve really deep um, into recipes and other exciting things that you're doing, um, so please look to that. And um, would you just yes. thank, thank you? Um, and I'd like to I'd like to say that there is um, there's a newsletter that I put out through that. So if anyone is interested in more details about or getting notification of when I of when I post because for people that I'm not friends with on um, Facebook or Instagram where I also oh, I'm going to go friends you okay and Karima could you just quickly tell us a little bit about what you're up to next so I have another book project that I have started um, I don't want to talk too much about it because when one starts a book project they always panic that someone's going to steal their idea. Um, but it's just to give you the basic idea, it's a history of pasta. And that is pretty much consuming a lot of my time. But I'm very excited about this uh, history of Italian pasta in particular. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Well, I hope it's as expansive and wonderful as this book. You really have a poetry in describing food, and um, it was a real pleasure to read. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Molly, um, for having me. I look forward to reading what you do next. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.